Hello and welcome to the Tuesday, September 26, 2023 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz pianist and composer Lex Corton. Lex Corton was born and raised in New York City. Surrounded by an enormous, rotating library of music in the household, Lex fell in love with jazz around the age of 10 after being exposed to the sounds of Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk. He found his first mentor, Brooks Hartle, through the backpack newsletter of his elementary school, and was guided into the life-changing discoveries of Wynton Kelly and Jackie Byard, amongst many other lifelong heroes. Lex's development continued at the Stanford Jazz Workshop in California for six summers. He also studied throughout high school with Taylor Eigsty and eventually Fred Hirsch. Lex was awarded by the National Young Arts Foundation for Jazz Piano and Composition before graduating in 2012 from the High School for Math, Science, and Engineering in Harlem. Lex attended the University of Michigan to study with Jerry Allen while pursuing a dual degree in political science. His years of close proximity with the scene and history of Detroit marked an extremely transformative period, thanks also to a tight group of inspired peers and an unforgettable cross-collaborative community in Ann Arbor. Lex was mentored closely for two years by renowned pianist Benny Green, and also learned from Marcus Belgrave, Robert Hurst, Andrew Bishop, Ellen Rowe, and Rodney Whitaker in the classroom and on the bandstand. After graduating with his Bachelor of Fine Arts in Jazz Studies in 2016, 
Corton returned to New York City. Since then, he has established himself as an irreplaceable young voice drawing a common thread between many different communities surrounding jazz and improvised music. This is shown clearly by the kind of band leaders who are seeking him out. He's lucky enough to be central in the musical activity of his generation's most ambitious leaders, including Joel Ross, Morgan Guerin, Simon Moulier, Sasha Berliner, Ben Solomon, Milena Casado, and countless others. Corton is also a prolific writer and band leader with several highly anticipated recording projects. His solo piano debut, Forward, released independently on June 18th of 2021. He aims to learn from his peers, elders, and youngers while continuing to compose and lend his voice to the ongoing dialogue occurring within the world of Black American music. Corton has taught in an official capacity at the New School and Long Island University, and also has taught private lessons to students at prestigious conservatories, including Oberlin, the Manhattan School of Music, and the Frost School of Music in Miami. He has also taught master classes at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, the University of Rochester, the University of Michigan, LACHSA, and Durban High School, among others. Lex Corton's performance schedule has brought him to some of the most lucrative stages in the world, including the Kennedy Center, Jazz at Lincoln Center, Blue Note Sao Paulo, the McCarter Theater, the Library of Congress, Hill Auditorium, Earshot in Seattle, Washington, AAPI in Newark, the Winter Jazz Festival, Zandari, Festa, The Kitchen, Roulette, Symphony Space, ZK Matthews Hall, the University of North Texas, Temple University, the University of Rochester, Berkeley College of Music, and virtually all major jazz clubs in New York City, as well as in cities like Detroit, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Miami, London, Seoul, Buenos Aires, and more. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Lex Corton. All Hello, right. Lex. Hello. How are you, Craig? I'm doing just wonderful this morning, and uh, it's really great to talk with you. Uh, I'd like to start with a question I ask everybody, because I'm always interested in everyone's origin story. Sure. Who or what turned the light on for you? What turned you mm. on to music? Mm. Well... Since you phrased it that way, I realize I have to uh, parse out what turned me on to music versus what brought me to the piano. Um, and I, uh, I mean, I guess I'm more used to talking about the piano part, but in fact, I, I really have to say 
from the moment I, from my earliest memories and before my earliest memories, I just was lucky to grow up in a household where uh, my parents had a big uh, LP and CD collection and there was always something on and there was really a wide variety of music playing in the house when I was a kid. And, and there were some jazz records, but it wasn't, uh, that wasn't necessarily the thing that took right away. But, uh, you know, my parents are both musical people, if not professional musicians. My mom is a, a modern dancer and my dad uh, is a very avid uh, non-professional clarinetist and pianist. And uh, so I feel like there's just a deep appreciation and a reverence for what music does. And I had really emotional, uh, I had, like, it was really easy for me to get really emotional if I heard an album that I liked when I was even just a, a baby, you know? Mm -hmm. So my parents had me take piano lessons classically when I was a little kid. And I got really thrown in the direction of jazz by this dual moment of me being really difficult to, you know, sort of sit still and follow instructions. And I was always kind of <laughs> letting my hands wander and do things that my teacher didn't really want me to do. Um, and I wanted to change the notes that were on the page of the pieces that I was learning. Um, and simultaneously to that, um, I had started to my ear was really curious about these recordings of, of Duke Ellington that I heard. And I remember like in at the end of elementary school, whenever you had a history project and you got to decide who you or like a biography project, I would always pick Duke Ellington or mm -hmm. Monk. And uh, so my parents found a name in the backpack newsletter of PS 87, my elementary school here on the Upper West Side. And mm -hmm. um the name that they found was this this man named Brooks Hartel, who um, he was a, a young piano teacher. I mean, he's younger than I am now, which is crazy. Or sorry, at that time, he was younger than I am now, which is crazy to me. But he uh, he's a beautiful uh, pianist who's uh, not necessarily as well known. Uh, and he doesn't live in New York anymore. But I studied with him basically weekly from the middle of the fourth grade until the 12th grade. And, and he's someone who opened whole worlds of of uh albums for me and I, and I could talk later about some of those influences um mm -hmm. uh but yeah that was the beginning of something very very special for sure well I, I tell you it's it's really interesting to me how many people I've interviewed that will talk about growing up in a musical household mm. maybe not necessarily uh both mom and dad engaged as musicians or even mm. professionals but that music was on, music was playing. It was just, uh, you know, uh, you know, you'd sing in the car when you were traveling somewhere, things like yeah. that. I think yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm, you know, uh, as a researcher, I'm not going to say there's a cause and effect there, but there certainly is a strong correlation. And, Absolutely. uh, and I think about my own origins sound very similar. Uh, mm. my, you know, my, both my parents were kind of, uh, keyboard pickers i guess you'd say mm -hmm. i mean they played for their own enjoyment Beautiful. and but they always had records on i grew up listening to all the classic broadway musicals yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. what they would have had they would have had the cast recordings for you know hello dolly and and the mm. music man and and mm. and so forth and i and i fell in love with that music i still love uh you know broadway musicals to this day mm. uh but uh you know so it was it was really kind of a kind of a neat thing and yeah. and then you had this wonderful teacher uh 
Mm-hmm. I, I suppose I had a similar kind of experience in that we had a Baldwin electric organ in the house. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I would sit and mess around with it when I was about nine years old. And my mother yeah. said, if you're going to play it, you're going to learn how to play it right. Wow. Play it correctly. So yeah. I started taking lessons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, having that support from family mm-hmm. is really, really important thing. Sounds like same for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, well that's great. Important. Great. And mm-hmm. I and I I couldn't help but chuckling to myself when you were talking about um, uh, when you were studying piano and your hands wandering and and mm-hmm. wondering if you were adding flatted fifths to your hand and exercises yeah, yeah, yeah. or something you know yeah exactly make them, make them sound hipper uh, <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's great that's great to have that experience let's talk about jazz itself as an art form mm-hmm. now we know it comes in a lot of different flavors. Yes. Which I love them all. I I mean, I mm-hmm. I mean, like uh, I, the gig I'm going to play tonight is with a trio. I have all it is, is it's tuba, guitar and trumpet. And mm-hmm. I also do the vocals. Wow. And our motto is we do music by people you never heard of. And that's older than dirt. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I always kind of joke with the, but I love old jazz. I love old blues. Mm-hmm. Of course, I also, I swing completely the other direction. I love avant-garde and that's amazing. And free jazz and everything in between. Yeah, it, It's sort of like, you know, when I, uh, you know, I, when I taught jazz history, I would tell my students that jazz is like going to the ice cream store. Mm. There's so many different flavors and you need to try them all. <laughs> you know, don't just, just don't just have vanilla. Yep. But Absolutely. a question, a philosophical, well, maybe philosophical, or maybe it's a structural, or uh, mm. I'm not sure what kind of question yeah. it is, but it's oh, yeah. your opinion. What is the essence of jazz across all of its various flavors yeah, and how is jazz different from other styles of music? Mm. That's a great question, and I know certainly uh, quite a heavy one. Um, I I would say, or well, okay, there's there's something about jazz, if that's a preferred term for the day, because of course there's people who don't choose to use that word. Exactly. I think, I think it's fine as far as. I think it's fine if we're just referring to something to talk about. Um, I I think that there is an element of it that is unspoken, that it just means what it means for every individual person. Um, but I would say that there is something deeply unique about jazz in the way that it engages the people who are sharing the room with the musicians. Um, and of course there, there are other forms of music that bring people in, but I feel like there's something about jazz that I just think that, you know, of course we could say that it's not a popular music and there are a lot of people who don't like jazz or haven't heard it much, but I still have a strong conviction that if you brought that layperson, let's say into a room, mm-hmm with a beautiful vibe and electricity in the air and the musicians are absolutely cooking and there's just a, a an engagement like that i think it's it's irresistible and i think it's it's universal in a way i i think mm-hmm. there's something irrefutable about sharing a space because it's it's just one of the most alive kind of spaces that there is in the sonic world um and i i do have a lot of uh 
feelings about the responsibility of musicians to actually create an engaging space when they're playing music and when they're improvising. Um, and it's something that I've talked about with friends a decent amount where, you know, you, you can, especially, especially contemporary jazz, which, which in a lot of ways is my, is my uh, de facto home, even though it's definitely not my only home. Um, you know, there, there have been trends of musicians who have a cold, a colder facade or, or there's sort of a barrier of like, I don't even want you to understand what I'm doing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I, that's, that's something that I do question and I, and I take issue a bit with, because I feel like even avant-garde music, um, and I, I'm rambling a bit, but I will give an example. I have a monthly residency uh, at a beautiful, uh, relatively new jazz club in Brooklyn called Ornithology, which mm. I'm in love with. It, it, the the owners, uh, uh, Mitch and Rie, are such incredible people. They've created a really unique space. And it's mostly a straight-ahead club. Um, but every the first Monday of every month, I bring in different bands and I and I cover a lot, a lot of different ice cream flavors for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been a couple of those gigs where I've chosen to play completely free improv or um, very avant-garde sounding stuff, very forward pushing and and left leaning, mm -hmm. let's say. And I've actually felt deeply embraced by the audiences, perhaps most deeply on the nights where we are literally just playing atonal free mm -hmm. improvised music mm -hmm. and I think that I think moments like that prove that people assume the worst about audiences and about people in general uh, but I actually think improvising can sometimes provide like the blankest slate and the most welcoming uh, space for people there's not this guard of like you can't possibly understand what I'm doing it's more mm -hmm. like we both don't know what I'm doing and let's, let's jump in, you know, let's jump into something together. You know, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, absolutely. And I think, I think that's that in a way that's, <laughs> that is jazz. Although I, you know, again, that word is not so that it's, it's not so important to me, but I understand why your question sure, is, sure, you know, sure. Wayne, I'm sure you've received this answer before, but you know, Wayne Shorter has defined jazz as saying, I dare you. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that that hit hits home for me for sure. There you are know, a lot of other, uh, other answers to that question. By the way, that's just one that I chose to explore. Right? I now. think that's I think that's a great answer, and only mm -hmm. because I agree with it a hundred percent. If for no other reason, no. Yeah. I, I seriously, I you know um, when I, you know I you taught jazz history and appreciation at the university mm -hmm. for many 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 years, and of course students ask. Mm -hmm. Uh, all kinds of questions. And and so they'll say, well, why should I listen to jazz as opposed to say the typical, and they'll name whatever pop artist that they, they like. And I say, yeah. well, it's sort of like this. I said, the pop artist that you're listening to is likely, although maybe not exclusively, doing their music the same way every night because mm. they're out touring to promote a record. That's how they really make their money, right? Yeah. When you go to a jazz performance, you're mm. watching musicians work without a net, mm -hmm. number one. Number two, the art isn't pre-created. It's being created right in front of you. 
as it's mm-hmm. happening. That's why I say jazz isn't just a performing art. It's a performance art mm-hmm. because we are actually creating new music right in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I love to use a lot of humor, self-effacing and sarcastic and so forth. So with my audiences, so like the other night, I said to you, you know, I was thanking them for their applause after one of the pieces we'd done. And I said, you know, that you come to this for the same reason you go to NASCAR races. You're Mm. waiting to see a crash. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, and waiting to see if we will survive that crash. And in a lot of ways, that's okay because you know, you're not going to know if we crash. We'll know, but we also know yeah. how to fix it. And yeah, and so I like that a lot. You're gonna yeah. you're going to enjoy watching us squirm a little, but also come to a a good resolution that everybody's going to be happy about. Yeah, 100%. and I said, yeah, and I I say a lot of that is 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 what jazz is all about, uh, mm-hmm. because because it's just it's it's not only extemporaneous. Mm-hmm. uh music making but it's like you know come on we've all been in the middle of playing something and something hasn't gone quite like we expected what do we yeah. do mm-hmm. we fix it we make it work mm-hmm. you know somebody plays a wrong chord change okay well i'm just going to change what i'm playing over it so what Absolutely. let's just let it go and that's the beauty of the music i think uh you know but it, it's a lot of what you're expressing i yes. just i'm saying the same thing but in a different way I, I I totally hear you. So yeah. so yeah, I think I think it's it's one of the things that makes music feel alive um, is the idea that we don't we don't know where we're going in a lot of ways. It's yep. it's like you're unraveling a thread. I I don't think I don't know if there's anything more alive feeling than that. And and I do believe that it's it's not just musicians on stage that are participating in that feeling during a live performance. I really feel like the audience is a a crucial component of that communication and that unraveling. Um, Yeah. And well, and I was just going to say, and boy, howdy, did we not learn that during COVID? Yes. Because it felt so (laughs) good to get back in front of a live audience after, Mm -hmm. after nearly two years of, yeah. of of not and i agree and i love to interact with my audiences mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. you know as a trumpet player you know i can yeah. you know i can i can actually well i don't say speak but i can respond to a particular person and do something yeah. either with a, an effect or some kind mm-hmm. of thing you know and i yeah. love that i love that in performing i'm sure you do similar kind of things when you're playing as well mm-hmm. well okay so we've talked about really maybe we've already answered this next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my next question was going to be, you know, because we've brought up that, you know, jazz is not the the pop music in America today, but it still has sustained itself and it still exists and lives. Mm-hmm. And, and I think maybe we've already described why mm-hmm. I don't, maybe I don't even need to ask that question unless you want to add to it, how, how jazz has continued uh to exist and live sure i mean i i i you know i don't i don't necessarily feel like an authority on on the idea of cultural uh, trends but um i do feel there are some nights where i'm just out in new york city and i i feel like i i see how jazz is 
not only surviving, but it's necessary. Like it's absolutely necessary. The the idea, uh, whether whether it's uh, you know tourists or NYC locals or or musicians or whatever, the ability to just wander around and you hear live music pumping out of a, a venue or a restaurant or even on the street, even people playing in Central Park, um, it is magnetic and it brings people in. Um, even I mean, I actually love looking around at curious faces, you know, people who are just drawn in and they don't know why, um, you know, and I, and I, I certainly I don't want to sound skeptical of any type of audience member, but that that means a lot more to me than, you know, people, uh, people who are maybe. Well, actually, no, I, I don't want to get negative, but, you know, there, there are people who just want to be seen in a jazz club and they think it's a cool place because mm-hmm. it's like a, they saw a movie once and and whatever. And then they just, you know, think it's it's background music or something like that. But but in general, I, I feel like there is a real connection and there are new there are new connections being made all the time. And and, you know, I'm finally at that age where I am I can look back and look, look uh, at, at, at people at the cohort of people who are younger than me and realize that they're that the self-replenishing nature of, of uh, young jazz musicians has not slowed down at all. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's so many engaged and interested young people. Um, and really, I feel like in the last two years, it's the first time in my life where I kind of snapped out of it and realized I wasn't the youngest uh, kid on the block anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it's, it's actually the most wonderful feeling, realizing that I can look ahead for inspiration towards you know my mentors and and the masters and everything and now I can also look uh behind um as well um and uh yeah I mean I I can't say it enough like it it just feels necessary like it feels like the world can't not have this kind of music um and um and I don't I'm not hung up on whether or not it's popular. Like I always wonder if jazz was more, I mean, I think jazz should be more, uh, what's the word, um, profitable for musicians. I think musicians deserve to have better livelihoods, but I I don't even know if the point of jazz is to be pop music at this point. Um, uh, and, and, and I think there's something about um, being a, being an accept like being a music that belongs to people and is on the ground and does not belong to branding and and uh you know marketing strategies in the same way of course that exists in jazz but i think i think most people are more skeptical than i am about that i i think that i think that really at the end of the day the musicians are in control of what they want to do and where they want to take their career um i just had a conversation with a good friend last night who's a who manages a bunch of uh, wonderful musicians and um yeah there there are musicians who have chosen a route of whatever this game is I don't want to play it I just want to focus on my music and mm-hmm. not do that and there are people particularly band leaders who are not rhythm section players who kind of are forced to craft their image in a certain way and I I uh I'm bad at that for sure uh but I I understand I understand that that in the real world that's what that's what one needs to do. Um, and then there, there, frankly, there, there are musicians, you know, the, some of the most successful musicians of my generation uh, have also, you know, someone like uh, Emmanuel Wilkins, uh, who's an alto player, 
deeply extraordinary band leader uh, and composer. Um, he's someone who is very conscious of his image. You know, he mm-hmm. he has a role uh, as a as a leader, uh, not just of his band, but in our cohort uh, broadly. Um, and I think he understands that that position is a very visible place and it's a responsibility in a way. And he conducts himself, I, I, I think, you know, someone like him, he conducts himself in a way on behalf of all of us um, and, and owns that, you know, when you, mm-hmm. when you look at him, he, he looks serious and, and mm-hmm. he has a style and, and, uh, and a persona that, that reflects that. Um, anyways, I think I'm getting a little bit carried away. Uh, I, I, th- I think you're saying a lot of wonderful things actually. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. love I love the way you're expressing yourself. Uh, you. So you. don't don't feel self conscious about what you're saying mm-hmm. because I think you're spot on. I you mm-hmm. know I would maybe like to just reflect back to you what mm-hmm. I think I'm hearing you say, mm-hmm. and that is that okay if we take different styles of music we might say we might say that pop music is sort of like a big box retail store. Mm-hmm. sells mm-hmm. lots of things lots of variety inexpensively mm-hmm. jazz and i'm going to put classical music in the same category because i believe jazz is like classical music is more of a boutique music it's mm-hmm. for a more selective audience it's more yeah. handcrafted perhaps more expensive it's mm-hmm. done at a, a, maybe a greater sacrifice than yeah. just uh making multiple units and and selling them at the the lowest possible prices sure and i think too that people who are in jazz or classical music and i'm not not putting a dig on taylor swift i'm sure she takes her music seriously Mm -hmm. and so do her fans you know people like that or sam smith Mm -hmm. uh but uh, I think there is a certain level of dedication to making art mm-hmm. as opposed to creating entertainment. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I think we take that very seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it's like when we go on the bandstand, I tell the guys in my groups, I says, I want you to dress in a manner that says that A, you're professional in your conduct, you're professional in your attitude, and you're serious about what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because I think we owe that uh, to our audiences as well, that we're we're serious about what we're doing. We mm-hmm. want to invite you in, and we want you to become serious about what we're doing as well. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, well, you've already sort of alluded to this, but I'm going to ask this uh, question anyhow. Then what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist, a musical artist, period, in the 21st century? Hmm. Um, I think for me, the biggest challenge um, that I have moved uh, a long way towards addressing and I still feel like is a challenge in some ways um is uh tackling a perception of when you are transitioning from being a student and a learner and a someone who is taking in all this information to someone who is actively participating in the dialogue and 
And what I mean by that really is, is like, when, when does one begin to feel included? Um, when does one begin to feel acknowledged um, by people, by people either their age or older? And I think for me, there were so many years when I just felt like I was gathering information and in school and studying and practicing. And, and uh, I mean, to be clear, it's not that I felt I deserved more at that time. I felt like I wanted to be invisible. I didn't want anyone to know who I was because I, I was not ready, you know, mm -hmm. and, and like, am I, am I ready now? No, like I, I'm, I'm still want to hide. <laughs> and, and then when I moved uh, back to New York city to sort of begin my career, um, I was preemptively really terrified that, um, you know, what is it, you know, are any of my peers even going to care that I'm here? Um, is there a way in? And when I found out that actually my peer group in New York City was a deeply rich and welcoming and open space to be, the challenge that really set in for me for a long time was okay, when am I going to be seen as something other than a music student or a kid? Mm -hmm, or a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when am I going to be able to jump into a space that challenges me? I mean, I felt challenged by my peers in incredible ways, but challenged in a way where I am clearly in a space where I am surrounded by people who are more experienced than me, who are daring me to exist and communicate in their world and on their level. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I just feel like those moments, those mentorship moments are crucial. And, uh, and they, they require so much trust. And I feel like people are very reluctant to trust young musicians. Um, and, and I think that that it's a, it's a, it's a form of gatekeeping that has very uh, dire uh, repercussions, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, even, uh, I mean, I made a, I made kind of a huff last year in a, in a well thought in a, in a thoughtful and, and lengthy social media post about how, um, at the village Vanguard, um, in, if you looked at the schedule for like the entire year, um, there were, there was almost no one under 40 who was even a side person in hmm. the band like let alone the band leaders forget about mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. but um even people who were in the bands even one there was not even one drummer one pianist or anything um in like a six month period who was under 30 and then there were even very very few who were under 40 and among the many thoughts that entered my mind when thinking about that was the idea of like what kind of world are they trying to create like mm -hmm. what are they they're not trying to build any new relationships um, and cultivate something. And then one day they're going to be scrambling for who who's going to play at this venue, because I don't actually, I haven't helped foster the growth of young musicians through this really important channel. You know, um, I think I'm getting a little bit sidetracked, um, but I, I just think that the idea of mentorship, it's not, it is a really selfless and vulnerable thing, but it's also simply an important thing because there needs to be a continuous flow 
of of people who are entering this world by being welcomed into it and not just yes. going their way into it. I'm you right know? with you. I am right yeah. with you. Now, you know, and and I think one of the things that we as creative people, mm -hmm. I, I think the monkey that's always on our back mm -hmm. is we do love applause, yeah. which is a form of approval. We love that. Yeah. But we love it even more when uh, a colleague says, hey, man, I dig what you're doing. But mm -hmm. we love it most when it's an older, experienced colleague of course. that says, hey, man, you're really doing something. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And I, I would guess I could I could use this as an example. I could show up. Uh, to uh, if you were playing, say you were playing at Mesro, and I could mm. show up and listen to you, and I could go, "Yeah, man, Lex, I really dig what you're doing," and I do. I've li mm. only listened to your recordings and your videos, you. but you know, and and yeah. you would find that uh, a certain level Absolutely. of gratification. Absolutely, of course, I would. But yeah. if Herbie Hancock was to come in mm -hmm. and come up and 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 in between you know, yeah. sets and put his hand on your back and say, man, you are carrying the torch. Mm -hmm. Now that would be, that would be a defining, th that would, it <laughs> would be because, because then you could say, wow, if her, someone as great as Herbie Hancock or anyone else of that stature, I just happened to pull that name out. Cause I, I was thinking of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's like the ultimate uh, seal of approval. The ultimate, mm -hmm. uh, you have cred, you, yes. you, you, you can do it. You are a unique and defining voice in and to yourself. Mm. The one thing that I, I always try to think about now, I'm in a similar, although very different kind of situation mm. because Milwaukee is not New York city. Mm. Uh, and our jazz scene in Milwaukee is considerably would, wouldn't even compare but we do have some great jazz musicians that Absolutely. are from milwaukee of course that I go agree. to new york and make and and are very successful i mean i, mean, I had the opportunity to meet them. meet brian lynch last yeah, fall exactly. and he's an old milwaukee guy and yeah carl and, and, uh, and, yep. um yeah uh, joe sanders a really great bass player i think he's from yeah and augie haas if you know he's another oh, yeah, player yeah, yeah. augie's from milwaukee and oh, i think uh, uh, phil, phil dizak is also from that area right philip dizak he's, a, he's uh a yeah i can't i off the top of my head i don't know but but mm -hmm. but my point is though is in milwaukee today it's like the barry sax player in my octet we were joking one night about i was struggling to find a gig for our group and he says well you know it's all the same seven guys that get all the gigs in Milwaukee, <laughs> you yeah. know, but in a certain sense, he's right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's almost a very close shop. Now I've tried to play clubs in Milwaukee and get people to come out and hear my groups, hear me play so that I can get that cred. But I finally decided that uh, I'm just going to start something out here in my own community. Mm -hmm. And so I found a, a new club that opened. It has a stage actually i'd played there once before when it was under different mm -hmm. ownership and a different name but it's got a good stage good lighting good sound system it's not a huge place yeah. and i just contacted the owner and i said hey what would you think about starting a regular jazz night i says for starters i'll come in and we'll just play for tips hmm. we won't charge anything we'll just come in and play because i wanted to get my bands out you know playing in front of an audience and uh, we've since, uh, you know, now since the first 
part of May. We've been playing every Monday night and, uh, and I have fun. The people in my groups have fun and we actually have uh, audiences that come out and lay people like we mentioned lay people who say, wow, I've never heard music like this before. What is it you're playing? I said, well, some might call it jazz. We're, we're doing is, you know, a little bit of this. And so, well, I'll come back and hear it again, you know? So it's like, you feel like a missionary in a way, you know, yes. and, 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 and that you, you've, you've converted another one. So it's sort of like, mm-hmm. instead of trying to fight for cred in Milwaukee, I'm just going to start my own thing out here in Waukesha, which is a suburb and it's smaller, but yeah. you know, and, no, uh, and just kind of keep it going. Uh, so yeah, I know what you mean because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, it can be uh challenging to, to get that uh, kind mm-hmm. of uh, credibility for people, credibility uh, uh, people is, you know, giving you that pat on the back. Yeah. So, well, Absolutely. I, well, I, I feel that, you know, it doesn't matter where in the world you are. And in, in, in fact, I think it can be the most meaningful in places like Waukesha uh, or any I don't I'm, I don't I'm not typecasting any place. I just mean any a place that's that's not a capital of jazz, New York City. Um, I think that when you perform, if you if you elicit a response from someone whose ears have never been touched in this way and and you uh maybe rewire something in the in in the subtlest of ways for a single audience member i think it's already a successful a successful show it's a successful uh, communication you know last week i had one of the most satisfying experiences of my performing life there wow. was a guy in our audience and uh, he hung around uh during the the break or maybe it was after we were done playing and he, and we got talking Mm -hmm. and he says, man, I just love, uh, this was with my, we were playing some really early stuff. So we were playing some jelly roll Martin pieces. Mm -hmm. And he says, Oh, I love that. He says, you know, I just, the other day at work, I was listening to jelly roll Martin on my, on my uh, earbuds, you know, while he was working. And this is a guy that uh, he, he works at the recycling plant and Mm -hmm. so all day while he's recycling plastic and aluminum and stuff he's listening and he comes Mm -hmm. out he had never been to this place before he had never heard us before but man did it strike because we played something he knew because he'd listened Mm -hmm. to recordings and it was we had a conversation for close to an hour Mm -hmm. uh because he was so excited by what we were doing and to me that's that that's the equivalent of me uh you know doing a slam dunk i just that's that's how i that's how i feel you know, yes, that's so, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, that's yeah. Incredible. I'd like to just for a moment. I want to focus on uh, the most recent recording that I could find of your playing, mm. which was the video of your trio playing at Mesro back in June. Sure. Now, when I first started listening to your trio, the first thing that came to my mind was mm. the Bill Evans trio. Mm. I heard a lot of that. In, yeah. in in your plane mm-hmm. and of course that's me my era so forth mm-hmm. but would you tell me and my audience about your trio and kind of talk about your concept but um uh, toward collective music making mm-hmm. uh and and maybe you know if it's specific to that performance but um, it may you may change it up you know sure. I, I i don't know but talk to us about that of course so 
Um, interestingly enough, uh, Piano Trio is one of my most uh, vulnerable and least um, owned uh, uh, paradigms as of yet. Uh, and it's something that in my shows at Mesro, I'm I'm really trying to finally give myself a chance to work on because I have done so much of my band leading in a quartet setting, um, which has which has an advantage of you know, I really like the kinds of conversations that happen between me and another melody instrument. Um, on the other hand, I realized I really missed playing melodies. Um, and and also, I haven't given myself the chance to really own the leadership role of my instrument, you know. Um, and that show in June was actually my first time playing with that trio, which is a trio that I adore. We've played as the rhythm section of many other bands. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and this this was a trio featuring Kanoa Mendenhall on bass and JK or Jungkook Kim on drums. And these are two of the leading voices. I mean, it's, it's, it's not arguable. Like the, these are two of the foremost voices on their instruments uh, mm -hmm. in, in my generation. Uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. And, and not only that, but I wanted to really uh, wield the trust that we each have for each other. And, and the result of that was trying to put together a set that was very free flowing, where uh, I think actually the first two songs of the set, um, not only did I play the first and second songs conjoined, but I actually sort of overlapped them like a Venn diagram where at some point in the middle of the first song I started giving hints of the second song but then I would go back to the first song almost like a a montage or a blending and then mm -hmm. finally wound up playing the second song those were both the Chick Corea tunes um mm -hmm. and um and I you know I can't really just wander into a bar and sit in a jam session and do that with a band this that requires a lot of unspoken trust you know um and um i i frankly remember feeling at during that show like i really need to work on this some more you know like i need to i need to i need to put myself in this situation repeatedly in order for it to feel as natural or effortless as i want it to feel but i felt like the musicians took such amazing care of the momentum um and uh i I, uh, when I, I, I certainly had, um, periods of time when I was young where Bill Evans was an incredible influence on me. And I, I may not have been thinking of him during this show explicitly or consciously, uh, but he's someone who I think has influenced my, my touch and my, um, and my eighth note in a lot of ways. Um, and he's someone that I do look up to for sure. Uh, but frankly, I mean, the way I put together that set, um, I don't really know who I would compare that to. I mean, uh, one of my favorite pianists ever uh, is a pianist named Jackie Byard. Mm -hmm. um, and he's someone who who frequently would structure sets in like a really free flowing way, especially his solo piano sets where he's acknowledging so much in a short period of time, acknowledging influences and composers and just weaving around and coming back. Um, and then also contemporary pianists too, um i don't know uh i could name anyone but uh, micah thomas wonderful pianist uh and he sort of 
he doesn't ever really look at his band or tell them what they're doing. <laughs> he kind of mm-hmm. just winds up in point B and they wind up there with him. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's too much or too little info, but, but uh, you know, that's a little bit of what my mindset was. Well, you know, the kind of thing that I enjoyed now, like, and I did this with, with your video recording. And then I, but I also remember the very first time I heard the Bill Evans live at the Village Vanguard, was it 1961 or something like that. And so with your group, I would make myself first focus on just you. Mm -hmm. Then I would focus on listening to the bass player. Then I'd focus on listening to the drummer. Mm -hmm. And the reason I made the Bill Evans comparison was because I had the same experience as when I was listening to Bill Evans, Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion. Mm. in that this way yeah. yeah it's almost like it was three very independent components yeah 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 lafaro isn't playing just walking bass mm-hmm. motion isn't just playing ding ding da, ding 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 right sure. and, yeah. and hi-hat on two and four mm-hmm. and evans is creating melody and harmony mm-hmm. even though those three independent components and i heard this in your group as well but they all meshed so beautifully. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Ed, thank you so much for saying that. And and when you put it that way, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Yeah. There's well, a, see, a, see, that was the big turn on for me because that's yeah. what I used to try to teach my students to do is mm-hmm. don't just listen to the beat. Don't just listen to the rhythm. Dig down. Listen to what the drummer's doing. Listen to what the bass player's doing. Listen to what the horns are doing or the you know, the, or whatever component and really pick it apart. And that's when you suck the marrow out. That's when you find all the juicy goodness that's really in the music, then back up Mm -hmm. 50 yards and, and experience it in its totality. Absolutely. So that's why I made the Bill Evans comparison, because I heard those similar kind of things. And to hear Mm -hmm. you tell me that Bill Evans was a big influence. Now, that makes me feel good, like I have some cred. Yeah, of course. course. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's someone to be to be honest, it was kind of a funny anecdote. But I just remember in my childhood when I fell in love with jazz, you know, which certainly uh, included kind of blue as one of the early records. Um, and Miles's first quintet and sextet. Anyways, um, I uh, really my favorite pianist at the time, and and still is is Wynton Kelly, and and mm-hmm. a couple of other pianists around that era. And I just remember, uh, you know, growing up on the Upper West Side, if I was entering certain kinds of spaces, everyone would tell me, you know, oh, so you play jazz? That's great. You better you better be checking out Bill Evans and Dave Brubeck. And I was kind of like, I, as a, as a young child, I gave them kind of a skeptical look because I felt that they were kind of missing something very important, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, which is the, the essence of jazz as a black music and feeling like, are you just looking at me and and deciding who I should be listening to? Um, Or are you, you know, I I sort of think you're forgetting something here. And Mm -hmm. so I, I actually stayed away as a, as an angsty preteen i stayed away from him for a while and then i had this incredible uh uh change transformation and discovering his solo album uh called alone uh which yes. is something that, that i sat with for for a very long time and and learned all those songs sort of in the way that he played them and and conversation we well, you know conversations with myself is either i think that's i think that's the name of his album where he oh yeah where well it's where he overdubbed with himself Exactly. Yes, I have um, that album. Yes. Yeah. And and those uh those were 
extremely influential and 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 of course you know i i have like all his records now i've listened to all of them and and someone that i that i love and he's he's actually more in a way he's more unique um i think than than people give him credit for just like you know his eighth note sounds borderline strange you know compared to other pianists and and i i love that in in a pianist the idea of of taking the time taking the time the concept of time feel and and declaring it as your own individual interpretation of it you know um and and he was someone who's who struggled a lot he struggled with uh uh insecurity he was so deeply reverent of the pianists who paved the way for him um and and i totally feel for that but um i find his music to to be extremely vulnerable and and uh and uh storytelling you know yeah um, yeah yeah that's why i love him too you know i mean yeah. you know but i but I'm also an Art Tatum and Bud Powell, and Absolutely. I love I love those Fats Waller. I'm listening more to Absolutely. Fats Waller here lately than mm-hmm. than uh, than uh, uh, other Fats people. Waller. I know we all go in cycles, you know. Oh, I understand. No, Fats yeah. Waller was actually one of my earliest earliest. Uh, I I don't know if I could say influences because I was so young, but it, he influenced me to fall in love with jazz for sure. He, I was listening to mm-hmm. him all the time during those during the period in which. I was just completely immersing myself and, and he's just one of the most joyous and one of the most talented musicians, I think mm-hmm. ever. Well, he's a lot of fun and I always kind of like everything he does is sort of with a wink and a smile. So I, yep. I yep. kind of, that's what I like about him. Well, let's yep. talk about you and your creative process. Mm-hmm. Um, what inspires you uh, to write? Mm. Um, Other than a deadline. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say that because um, over the years, I have um, I have sat down at the piano to write because I am in the mood or whatever. And then there are times where I sit down at the piano to write and I have a deadline. And it's it's uh, not the happiest admission, or I, I don't want to typecast it that way. But I have actually achieved some of the most magical uh discoveries because of deadlines and and i want to clarify that and say that um deadlines can be self-imposed also and i think what's what's helpful in addition to deadlines is limitations that you might want to give yourself um um and they're they're really i I can focus on one example um where just about a year ago a little more last spring um I had not been writing for a long time and uh, Rio Sakari, the uh, this the woman who runs the jazz gallery um, and, and she does a really incredible job at this beautiful venue in New York that's been around for a quarter century. Um, she asked me if I had a project that I wanted to bring there. And I, she's she's really the only club owner in New York that I've had a longstanding relationship. She's the first person who ever trusted me and gave me a chance. And so when she asked any question like that, I take it seriously. But my honest answer was, I don't have a project right now. And I don't want to come on your stage just to BS. I want to, I want to really conceive of something that's, that's, you know, worthy of the space. And she kind of like cocked her head and looked at me and was like, okay, you know, all right, whatever you say. (laughs) And then the next time I was at the gallery, I was playing a couple of weeks later in someone else's band. And she just said, she just kind of looked at me with a 
straight face, you know, dead expression. It was like Lex, um, May 26th, put something together. I'm giving that to you. you know? <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's maybe that's like four weeks away, but uh, I'll, I'll try my best. And contrary to my one's instinct, which might be like, okay, throw something together, just pick tunes that you know. Somehow I landed on the decision that I'm going to start a brand new band and I'm going to compose an entire book of music. Um, and not only that, but I want to give myself um, a, a limitation, a difficult limitation. And that for that band, uh, I chose to limit myself to uh, making an ensemble that had drums, but did not have bass, uh, which is a, a, a blasphemous idea to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and including younger versions of myself, I mm -hmm. could not figure out how to play in that situation. And so I assembled a group of people that I deeply admired uh, for their sort of individual approach to their instrument. Um, I had a, a voice, a vocalist, uh, Claire Dixon, who's also a really breathtaking composer um, and synthesizer player. I had a, a Talia Halom, a guitarist, um, David Leon, um, alto sax, and Stephen Bagelhold, a drummer. So the instrumentation was piano, voice, alto, guitar, and drums. And it wound up being one of the most transporting experiences to just sit and write that music and emerge into this new space. And, and I took, um, I mean, I'm, I wanna actually be less abstract with, with my answer here. Uh, one of the things I did was that I, I took uh, manuscript paper with me wherever I went. So namely on long subway rides, I would just have it with me. And it was super important for me actually to get away from the piano when I was writing, because I, as a pianist, when I approach the piano to compose, my fingers have things that they want to do. They always just want to do certain things. And I wanted to free myself from that. So I would use this book to write down not only ideas that came into my head musically uh, or melodically, but to write down goals and, and things that I wanted from this song or from this band. Like, okay, I want this song to involve a participatory improvised space where there isn't just one soloist and then you go to the next soloist. I want to think about rules that I can put here to where there's kind of a controlled but shared authority over the improvised space. How can I do that? You know, writing down ideas like this. This song, I want the bass voice. I want I want the bass part to be the voice. I want the bass part to be the alto, you know. Okay, then what else am I going to do? In this song, I want to elevate the drums to almost a melodic role, you know. And these are not things that would be enhanced at all by sitting in front of a piano. These are things that I needed my own space, you know, to sit in a park or sit in a subway and, and just think about what I want. And I'm really proud of where I landed with that group called Canopy. Um, and we've, uh, we played a couple shows and, and it's been on hiatus for a minute, but it's absolutely at the forefront of my mind to bring back. And, you know, this all came from Rio telling me, look, dude, I'm going to give you this date and you're going to do something. She did not expect me to do all that. 
Um, you, you know what I happen to just think of? Mm -hmm. Creativity is like toothpaste, but somebody mm -hmm. has to give the tube a squeeze. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Rio yes. gave gave your tube the squeeze yes. to get yes. that creativity to come out. She did. Um, she absolutely did. Um, and uh, and I, I, it's unfortunate. I, I in in a way, like I, I want to be able to mobilize that uh on command and sometimes i've given myself just personal deadlines and that's worked also okay. um but yeah i think that's that's one that's definitely an important um instance of, of an answer to that question actually sure. that's a beautiful answer to me i because i think what i'm intrigued by something mm -hmm. that you've talked about that uh uh, i don't know that others because i i ask similar questions of everybody i interview who writes I don't know that I've I've had anybody tell me that they actually wrote down in verbiage what they wanted to accomplish and then set out to comp do you know to write the music to to uh, attain those goals mm -hmm. um although maybe to a certain extent um yeah I uh I had an interview with uh I think I, I her name is escaping me but I uh uh, a pianist uh, songwriter and her newest uh, solo album. She told me that about three fourths of the tunes on the album were improvised in the studio. Amazing. That's and amazing. It, you know, she went in with some things, some basic frameworks, but most everything was just, it was improvised in the recording session. That's amazing. And uh, you know, and everyone's got a lot of different. I, I'm just intrigued by the creative process and how different people work and so forth. Well, I, I and I think this is wonderful. Do you have any recordings of this group that you've you've written for? Um, I have no professional quality recordings of the group, but it's okay it's at the forefront of my mind. Um, I would I would love to be able to give you and and your listeners something tangible right now, but um, okay. I want is to to book a couple more shows with this group and then take okay. them to the studio right but, away. But even anything online that you've just recorded one of your shows, is there anything out there? So I, I'd be uh, intrigued to hear it. That's what I'm getting. Of course. At. Well, um, oh, do you mean for Canopy specifically for this yes, group? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I if you're for your curiosity, I have a uh, um, I have a recording of one of the shows that's uh, you know very much bootleg quality. Uh, okay. that I'd be happy to send you as a reference. Oh, if you uh, would, I'd love to hear yeah. this because well, thank your you. your concepts mm. and your what you're trying to get really intrigues me. And I'd like, because I very often think similarly, I sometimes work with my guys and we'll take a, we'll take a tune like uh, Charles Mingus's Canon, for example. Mm. Mm. And I'll tell the guys in the group, say, okay, we basically have two different pieces of material that we can work with we've got mm. the canon melody mm. and we have the uh three eight baseline that we can mm. any at any time you can switch between one or the other if they're going simultaneously that's okay what we're basically yeah. creating is a pastiche a mosaic mm. of uh, uh musical sounds based on this this pre-existing material or yeah. there's nothing wrong with like say simultaneous improvisation if you know you just work out it's like it's counterpoint in a sense yeah. it may yeah. not be very strict counterpoint but it's still nonetheless counterpoint and yeah. one idea 
juxtaposed against mm -hmm. another idea interacting with each other mm -hmm. um you know i i think those are all awesome ways of thinking yeah. and yeah. it doesn't matter if they're in the, you know i once heard miles davis say he was talking about a picasso painting and mm -hmm. and all of the interactions of different shapes and colors and he said then why can't we create music that's simultaneously in three different keys Mm. or has three different ideas going simultaneously that Absolutely. just are interacting on their own. I thought, you know, and I, I love that idea. Okay. Yeah. I want to completely shift gears here for a minute because mm -hmm. I know you're also an educator. Mm -hmm. What do you tell your students who are aspiring toward a career in music? Um, well, I would say that the uh, perspective that I want to give people um in that sense is to be less afraid um of taking their first steps into a larger community uh because that's something that held me back for a while was a mm -hmm. fear of um you know when i move to new york uh, and and I grew up here, but I I wasn't really involved professionally at all in my childhood. And then I I went off to Michigan for school. And when I came back um, to New York, I I just had it in my head like everyone is going to have their friends and their musical circles worked out, and there's not any room for me. And why would anyone care? And I am so glad that I took the chance, anyways, because I felt like. I feel like when people move to New York, the circle always gets wider. And of course, I don't I don't mean to be New York centric. Uh, it's that's that's absolutely not how I conceive the jazz community across the world. But it's just one example of a community sure. that you can move into um, and be really intimidated. And all it takes um, is some time spent on the ground uh supporting your favorite musicians when you meet someone new let's say meet, you meet someone who you look up to um don't just say hi and even even something well intended like i really love your music and then that's it it's it's not a door opener actually you know it, it can it can be a meaningful thing to hear um but if you approach someone with questions or uh or just something, a remark, uh, you know, when I, when I, I had one opportunity where I met the great Ron Carter at the Detroit Jazz Festival in 2015, and I was still a pretty nervous kid at the time. Um, but I thought beforehand of what I wanted to ask him if I crossed paths with him. And we went backstage. I went with a dear friend of mine, bass player, um, and I I wound up asking him ultimately uh, what his experience going to Cast Tech High School was like when Paul Chambers was three years ahead of him. And was, did he have any meaningful connection with him at that time through the high school? And it was a beautiful door opener because uh, Ron Carter got to tell me about how actually his father and Paul Chambers' father were both bus drivers for the same bus company in Metro Detroit. And so their families were already connected and they already knew each other 
just because their dads were both bus drivers, you know, and, and he was musing about that for a little bit. And it was a really s- sweet space. And I mean, look, I'm not a person yet who I think people would have a lot of reference points or questions about, but I do think when you meet older folks, even if it's someone who is just the staple of a scene in a, in a town or a city somewhere, you know, approach them with curiosity and, and it, it opens doors and it's, and it, and it, it paves the way for a space where that older person actually feels like they have something to offer and that their insights and their experience are finding a destination with someone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think to get involved and not, and, you know, YouTube is great, but it is one way. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I think for people who love music, uh, if you follow that, um, energy, it's something that people can detect. Um, and it's difficult to enter. I know it's, it's difficult. It can be scary to, to enter spaces with, with other people. Uh, but at some point you're going to have to do it. Um, yeah. So that's just one, that's one. I think that's excellent advice. And I, and I would tell my, you know, another way to put it, and I used to put it to my students is remember, number mm-hmm. one, regardless of their greatness, they're still human beings. Mm-hmm. And they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. <laughs> and and uh, and I'll tell you, the other thing that you just hit on is mm-hmm. so much the, the raison d'etre of mm-hmm. why I do this podcast. Because I can talk to you because I've gotten interested in you and you're talking to me and I'm finding out, uh, which I find very gratifying, by the way, that we have a lot of thoughts in common, Mm. despite the separation of distance, Mm -hmm. levels of musical sophistication, Mm -hmm. uh, the arenas in which we perform. And that sort of thing. And it, and it just, again, kind of cements my uh, ideology that, that music is very universal mm-hmm. and that musicians yeah. are very universal, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think that's, that's, uh, that's excellent advice. What you have brought up. Don't be afraid to talk to people because they're human too. Yes. I think that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm going to kind of wrap things up here because I know you wanted to try to be done close to, to 12 mm-hmm. and we're a little bit after, but I, I just want to recap. Do you have any, any new recording projects coming up or in the works either um, of your own or with others? Right. Okay. Well, um, I would say the one that I want to mention above all is, is a release that I have. Um, it's the only album that's out under my own name and uh, we could get into a philosophical discussion, but at the moment, my uh, my aversion to streaming reigns supreme. So this album is a Bandcamp release and it's a solo piano record that I did uh, live in South Africa in 2020. And I am very oh. proud of it. It's called Forward, uh, F-O-R-E-W-A-R-D. Um, okay. and, and that's an album of standards and improvisations um, that I that I uh, highly recommend checking out. And uh, in addition to that, I, I'm in a phase right now where I'm band leading all the time in New York, and I have the chance to bring incredible groups to stages here. And I'm in the I'm swimming in the fray of all of it. And there are some groups that have really touched me and that I might try and record next year. And in the meantime, um, 
I mean, there's some albums that I'm that I'm really proud to be on. I can't remember what's been released recently. I, I have upcoming releases with two wonderful artists, Hannah Marks and Alfredo Colon. Uh, maybe both of those are coming out on Out of Your Head Records. Um, and then I, I I have albums out that I'm really proud of with, uh, you know, great vibraphonist Simon Moulier and uh, bassist Ben Tiberio. And of course, my my hero, Taishan Sori, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, among others. Uh, so, yeah, and there's there's some rabbit holes to jump Good. down. Good, good for you. Yeah. Well, Thank if you. I were to uh, magically be able to, to come to New York, uh, mm-hmm. where are you going to be playing in the next few days or weeks? Well, I think my next significant uh, performance is uh, on September 4th at Ornithology in Brooklyn, and I'm able to bring the incredible uh, Melissa Aldana, tenor saxophonist, uh, into my quartet uh, with the great uh, rhythm section uh Tyrone Allen on bass and and Eviatar Slivnik on drums and we're going to play some of my original music um and I'm very very excited for it wow. um, yeah I hear I keep hearing more and more about Brooklyn sounds like it's a real happening place absolutely it, it I would I say mean, new clubs and things exactly as far as new club like all of the newer jazz clubs in the last five ten years in New York almost all of them I guess Mesro is about 10 years old but um, yeah, Brooklyn, you know, there, there's just a litany of, of new clubs in Brooklyn, some of which I like more than others, but, but ornithology is, is probably okay. my favorite. It's, it's such a welcoming space. It's, it's so inclusive and the energy of the room is all pointed towards the musicians. I think a, a lot of magic happens there for sure. And it was started by the original, the original founder of Smalls who, who founded it in the nineties. And then he retired, you know, a couple of years ago, and this is his retirement project with his oh, wonderful, uh, very talented wife, uh, Rie. Uh, so yeah, anyways, uh, no, a lot, lot going on in Brooklyn. Okay. That's awesome. Well, I'll have to put Brooklyn on my, uh, my uh, bucket list. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I don't Let know, me know when ever... you're visiting. Oh, I will. I, I don't yeah. know that I've ever been to Brooklyn. I've been to Manhattan. Sure. Uh, but uh, I don't know that I've been to Brooklyn. Well, okay. Well, Lex, let's wrap things up. I have one last question. Sure. Uh, I try to be thorough, but I know I don't always uh, cover everything. Is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you? Um, I would just like to add that you are easily in the top two Professor Hursts that I've ever uh, interacted with. I don't know if you've ever gotten this before, but I studied with Professor Hurst in my jazz department too. Oh. Uh, which is Robert Hurst, uh, one of the great bass players. Oh, the bass player Robert Hurst. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. we're not related. You're not okay. I was. Uh, I wasn't sure. <laughs> That's really why. Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, I remember him when he was playing bass with uh, Wynton Marcellus. Yep. Yeah. I think definitely. I saw him. Actually, saw him. There was a club when I lived in Fort Worth, Texas. There was a wonderful mm-hmm. club there called the Caravana Dreams. Oh, and I love went, it. And it, this would have been in the mid late '80s. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and I think Robert Hurst was playing bass with Winton at that time. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great oh. to meet a second illustrious uh, Hurst. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, yeah, a pleasure to be here. And I um, I wish you all the best with uh, with all of your musical endeavors in Wisconsin. I'll certainly uh, reach out to you if I'm, if I'm traveling there. Yeah, well, uh, and there are some nice clubs out here. But Lex, mm. I want to thank you for taking mm. time to talk with me today. You're sounding like a busy guy and I'm mm. fortunate that you took time to talk with me and mm. I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. You bet. 
My discovery composer of the week is Jacques Hibert. Born in Paris, 1890, he died in 1962. Hibert began learning the violin at the age of four and then took piano lessons from Marie Daré, who came to occupy a special position in his life. After obtaining his baccalaureate, Hibert decided to devote himself to composition, but he also had to earn a living by giving lessons, accompanying singers, and writing program notes. He became a cinema pianist and also began composing songs, some of which were published under the pseudonym William Berti. He joined Emile Pessard's harmony class at the Paris Conservatoire in 1910, went on to Gedalge's counterpoint class in 1912, and then studied composition with Paul Vidal in 1913. It was in this class that Hibert met Oniger and Mio. During World War I, he was first a nurse and stretcher bearer at the front, then a naval officer stationed at Dunkirk. That he won first prize in the Prix de Rome at his first attempt in 1919 was therefore a remarkable achievement after the four years of enforced interruption to his musical activities. Hibert now launched his career as a composer with the support of his wife, Rosette. The first public concert of works by Hibert was given at the Concerts Cologne on October 22, 1922. Hibert's success was reinforced on January 6, 1924, when Paré conducted his Escals with the Lamoureux Orchestra. This quickly made Hibert known to a large public, both in France and abroad. On the advice of his publisher, Alphonse Leduc, he wrote two collections for piano, and they too helped him to establish him. The first work of Hibert's to be given at the opera in 1925 was the ballet from the second of these piano works, Les Reconteurs. The success in 1927 of his opera bouffa, Angelique, finally confirmed his status as one of the best-known composers of his generation. Hibert also contributed to musical life by sitting on professional committees and conducting his own works both in France and abroad. In 1937, the government made him director of the Académie de France, at the Via Medici. Appointed to this eminent position, however, Hibert threw himself wholeheartedly into his administrative role and proved an excellent ambassador of French culture in Italy, supported admirably by his wife. He held the post of director until the end of 1960, apart from an interruption during World War II. The war was an especially difficult period for Hibert. In 1940, the Vichy government banned his music, and he was forced to take refuge in southern France, where he continued to compose. After several months in Switzerland, from 1942 to 1943, he returned to France and lived in the Haute-Savoie until August 1944, 
when General de Gaulle recalled him to Paris. In 1955, Ibert accepted an appointment as administrator, which put him in charge of both the opera and the opera comique. After less than a year, however, serious health problems forced him to resign. Two months later, he was elected to the Académie des Beaux-Arts. Ibert's music embraces a remarkable variety of genres, as well as a considerable diversity of moods. His music can be festive and gay, lyrical and inspired, or descriptive and evocative, tinged with gentle humor. Neither atonal nor serial, and very rarely polytonal, all the elements of his musical language bar that of harmony related closely to the classical tradition. He makes regular use of chords of the ninth, eleventh, and thirteenth, altered and added note chords. His mo modernity is also apparent in the contrapuntal writing that is the motor element in many of his works, though the sense of a tonal center is preserved through the use of traditional cadential formulae. Evidence of the influence of other composers, even quotations, are found right across his output. But the blend of tenderness and irony, lyricism and the burlesque, are characteristics distinctly his own. Dramatic works form a significant part of Ebert's output. He contributed enthusiastically to film music in its early years and to the development of broadcast music. Attracted by the theater, he wrote seven ballets, Five of his symphonic works were also adapted for dance. He composed six operas, two of them in collaboration with his friend Onager. Ebert was drawn to the melodie early in his career. Most of his essays in the genre were composed in the decade between 1920 and 1930. Thereafter, he tended to compose songs only as part of operatic theatrical, cinematic, or radio works. He was equally adept at writing for solo instruments. He composed over 30 pieces for piano, as well as works for flute, harp, guitar, violin, cello, bassoon, trumpet, and saxophone. His string quartet has had several recordings. It was for the orchestra, however, in works such as the three concertos, two symphonies, one which was unfinished, and eight symphonic movements that he reserved the best of his creative inspiration. Here his writing is always brilliant and assured. His concise and sharply etched style, marked by clarity of form and sureness of balance. His orchestration is always transparent and avoids undue complexity, showing a good understanding of instrumental possibilities. Ebert's articles and interviews provided an outlet for his views on the present and future state of music in France. In particular, he defended film music, criticizing the difficult working conditions suffered by composers. His ideas, like his music, display the same libertarian tendency that kept him from subscribing to aesthetic movements of any kind. The honesty and courage of his views allowed him at one and the same time to admire the works of Wagner, 
appreciate the creative force of Schoenberg and take an interest in the innovations of Musique Concrète, which the sound effects of his incidental music for Don Quixote might be held to anticipate. The All Music Guide lists four recordings of Ebert's ballets, 26 recordings of his chamber music, one recording of his choral work Les Berceaux du Petit Zebu, four recordings of his concerti, five recordings of his film scores, 16 recordings of his work for keyboard, four recordings of his operas, 19 recordings of his orchestral works, two recordings of his show musical work, and 17 recordings of his composition for voice. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of Ibert's Symphony Marine, performed by the Orchestra de Concert Lamoureux, conducted by Yutaka Sado. That wraps episode number 156. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing Chicago-based trumpet player Zachary Finnegan of the Michael Buble Orchestra. Other upcoming interviews include Wisconsin-based Chicago blues phenom Joe Nosick, country Americana singer-songwriter Mike Thomas, New York City-based jazz saxophonist Quinson Nachoff, and all the way from the Czech Republic, singer-songwriter Tony Rose. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank you.